everyone. It's the Life of Jam Live video podcast. Season two. We're almost done. We only have a couple episodes left in December. This is season two, episode six. No, 16. <laughs> and I call this one Writing with Heat. And the reason I call this one Writing with Heat is I have an amazing guest, guest Ruthie Marlene. Say hello. Give us a high wave. The author, epic writer who lives in the desert here in Southern California in the Inland Empire. She's the author of numerous books, including her most recent, Magnum Opus, Agave Blues. I'm going to read her bio, and then she's going to read for five minutes, and then we'll get into the meat of the interview. Here goes. Ruthie Marlinet is a Mexican-American novelist, poet, and screenwriter, born and raised in Orange County, California. She lives... She- And she lives in Los Angeles and the desert of the Coachella Valley with her husband. She earned a writer's certificate in fiction from UCLA. She's the author of numerous books, including Isabella's Island, Curse of the Ninth, which was nominated for a James Kirkwood Literary Prize, and her most recent, Agave Blues, which is amazing. It received an honorable mention by the International Latino Book Awards for the Isabel Allende Most Inspirational Fiction Book Award. An excerpt from the novel was also nominated for a Pushcart Prize. Marlene is also currently working on a sequel titled And Still Her Voice. Her poetry and short stories can be found all over the place. She's very widely published, including Shark Reef, The Coiled Serpent Anthology, So to Speak, Detour Ahead, What They Leave Behind, a Latinx Anthology, Silver Birch Press, Slow Lightning, and Practical Poetry, and Writing from Inlandia. She's received numerous awards for her screenplays from the Women's International Film Festival, the Osaka Film Festival, the Carmesi International Fest, and the Mexico International Film Festival. Welcome, Ruthie. And we're really good friends. I'm so happy to have you. So honored. And I'm so excited to be here and really looking forward to our chat. This is a, this is the treat of the holiday. <laughs> and at the end, we're going to have a special treat. We both have our tequila. Because as you'll hear, Ruthie's book centers around tequila. Mine's empty. <laughs> well, I'll, we'll both do a shot virtually. Well, it's because um, I share mine. I, I share mine. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I'll go ahead and, and um, read an excerpt. Um, I've uh, read it before, but this really just kind of captures the story a lot. Um, it's a story about a woman from LA, an attorney, Latina, um, has gotten the call to go and um, and uh, pick up her father, or identify her father's body in the, in Mexico, the place where she was born. So she, in this scene, she's just left the um, the morgue. Are you there, uh, Juanita? I am. Okay, I just saw my big old face. Like, <laughs> but the camera's on you, so I'm here listening. All right, I'll come back in. That threw me off, that big old face there. All it's right. all about you, gorgeous. Okay, so chapter three, A Good Tabernero Listens. Cantina, the blinking neon sign, beckoned me. So after identifying my father's body, I stood across the street from the morgue, blinded, by the Mexican sunlight, contemplating the windowless tavern wedged in between two whitewashed casitas. 
Like a couple of strays, sadness and fear came licking at my heels. I scurried across the road, heels clicking over cobblestone, and stumbled into the dank watering hole, instantly sucking in the familiar tang of sweat, cheap cigarettes, beer, and tequila. Sad mariachi music, music I'd learned to despise, blared out of the jukebox. Undeterred, I approached the bar and took a seat on a three-legged rickety stool. I gasped when I saw my reflection through a smudged mercury glass mirror on the back wall and quickly smoothed back my unruly hair. I noticed how my furrowed, my brow furrowed with stress-like tiny rows raked across a field of pain. My eyes felt gritty and peering closer, I saw my sclera red as the soil of the region. My iris is still the color of agave. I looked around, surprised by what I didn't see. No young people, no young men, no women of any age. Everyone who'd been able had left Sagrada Familia to go north long ago, like my mother, brother, and I had. Tucked into a dark corner sat a man, ancient as Rico Van Winkle. Behind me at a small lacquered metal table with cervasa painted on, in black letters on top were two more mature, scrawny, milky-eyed men hunched over their beers. The skeletal bartender, dusty as the bottles on the glass shelves, flashed a gold-framed, toothy smile as he approached me. A shot of your best tequila, por favor, I said, setting my father's belongings down onto the counter. I pulled out my cigarettes and only stared at them before stuffing them back into my purse. The barkeeper rubbed his bony hands together, grinning mischievously as he backed away. He twisted around, creaking as he reached up for a bottle on the highest shelf. He dusted off the jug pulled off the wax seal, uncorked it, and brought the lip to his nose. Inhaling deeply, the cavernous wrinkles on his face smoothed out like a tumbled river stone. And when he opened his cloudy eyes, I noticed they were amber, the color of the tequila he poured into two small glasses. As soon as he opened the bottle, the mixed bouquet had taken me back, both the sweet scent of my childhood and the bitter odor of my father. We'll drink the Joaquin Hidalgo, said El Barman. Wait, you know my father? See, si, he was a regular. Pero antes, we used to work out at the tequila farm when we were younger, the bartender said, holding up the old bottle. He gave this to me when I left to open this cantina. I promised I'd only open it when he came in to share it with me one day. Joaquin said it was only for a special occasion. So I waited. The bartender then poured two glasses. I'd say this was a special occasion. You are his blood, la sangre atrae. There's that saying again, only two days ago in court. It already felt like a lifetime ago. A client had whispered the words. It's the first time I'd really paid attention to the saying, la sangre atrae. See, I suppose the blood has called me back. I began to understand. He held up his glass. Salud. He peered a little closer. Tienes los mismos ojos de su papá, tapatíos. So I have his eyes, I thought. Tell me something I don't know. Tell me I have nothing more in common with my father than the color of his eyes. I'd never be anything like him, and I'd never been able to understand why he acted the way he did, why he'd done the things he'd done. Was I destined to end up like him, sharing a drink called loneliness with this strange bartender, or worse yet, alone? Would I end up crazy? And then for one irrational moment, I wondered, do I have Pancho Villa's eyes too? I, fe- I felt the tears welling, every pore in my body swelling with gooey emotion. With a shaky hand, I lifted the glass. Here's to you, Papa. Hijo de puta.
I could imagine Mama uttering so crudely. And I could hear Papa yelling back, I warned you never to call me son of a bitch. Laying a hand on my stomach, I braced for the pain, bringing the glass to my lips. Expecting the warm liquid to burn a fire road down my rough throat, I swallowed. Surprised when it didn't burn. Bueno, the tabernero asked. I nodded, and as the next sip trickled down my throat, I thought again about the first time I'd heard the blood calling me black back. I'm sure it had been summoning me for some time, but only two days ago it hit me in the head like a ton of bloody bricks. The bartender poured us each another shot. This is some good stuff, I toasted the time-worn man. It's from Los Olvidados. The forgotten ones? The tequila farm? He nodded. You should visit. And I'll stop there. Oh, amazing! Thank you. Have my blue bottle tequila reposado for you here. My favorite reposado. Oh, is it? Yeah. And we'll talk about tequila, but I'll take a little sip. I got to go slow because I just, I never drink during a podcast. That's a lot. <laughs> this is water. <laughs> okay. okay. Now water. Yes. So, what a beautiful, what a beautiful passage to read. Your work is fiery, lyrical, cinematic for sure. Let's start with that scene in the bar with your father and about home. You say in that passage, blood calls you back. You know, I love books that talk about home. Talk about how the notion of home impacts your writing and especially in agave blues. Home. Um, well, not to sound cliche, but home is where the heart is. And in agave blues, the heart is the piña, which is the heart of the agave, which is the juicy part of tequila. So another cliche is, you know, wherever you go, there you go. So you take your heart with you wherever you go. And if you don't take care of your heart, um, like Maya, you're in for some some sorts of catastrophes, if not one thing another, um, because you need you really do need to take care of yourself. We're going to talk more about that, and just so people know, the story starts out with Maya, who's a stressed out lawyer who travels back to Mexico, Mexico, where she was raised with her daughter Lily when her father dies. So, did you always know that you were going to structure it like this? Because we start. I also love books that talk about place. You start in Los Angeles and you capture it perfectly. You know, I lived there for three years. I always say there is no there there in LA. Um, unlike a lot of places like Houston, San Francisco, where it's very distinct. In LA, there's all these different neighborhoods, but you capture that Hollywood LA lifestyle so well. Did you always know you were going to structure it in a very cinematic and almost traditional way with Maya realizing her father's dying or died and then goes back home? Like, did you always know that when you started writing this? Um, I know I, when I write something, I want it to, I imagine it being a movie. I imagine, mm -hmm. I, I imagine use of all of the senses. Um, I can even hear the music. There's music in this. I want, I want Lila Downs to play the background music for me in the, in the movie version that I'll someday. But um, did I always imagine, I just write what I know. And I know parts of LA, I know parts of Mexico. I know some of these characters. Um, and so um, 
I write from from that perspective. So yeah, I do know some of the, the places that I do write about. Um, and you can feel that, you know. Um, I love also how you wrote in first person. It felt real and true to the character, the immediate family, as well as all the pleitos, all the drama of the extended family. To me, I could see it as a novella more than a movie. I I really just saw these like family interactions. And then you have the economic aspect with the business that sustains the family. But tequila can also be damaging. Um, so... There's a lot of trauma, too, that Maya must confront, and I don't want to give anything away, but you also blend that in with the magical realism side of the story, where there's a blue genie magical tequila uh, genie at work. How do these two issues work together, and how do they complement, and how hard is it to write magical realism? Because for me, the end result of what I got, which I love so much as a writer, is that art is magic, which is healing. Exactly. Um, so a lot of the trauma is hard to write about. Um, and magical realism is a way to um, talk, talk about the themes such as identity and um, resistance and human rights and all the, the issues and, and trauma that she's going through. It just makes it, again, I'll use that word again, palatable for the reader to take it in. Um, I, I read something recently and I couldn't find it again, but basically the female voices have also used magical realism to say aloud the problems that women across the globe are having. And it's also an element used to make a point about uh, reality. So it, um, it just makes it easier to handle and easier to talk about. It kind of puts up a, a protective screen between reality and, and, and the trauma. And you and I were talking about this off screen when we were in the green room. And you, it, this is really a craft, uh, a craft kind of book. If someone wants to know how to write magical realism, you do a beautiful job of building it into the story seamlessly, where we as the reader accept that this is Maya's reality. It may be magic, but it's her reality as she sees it. At no point are we going back and forth. It's just part of the story. And I was telling you before that you just do it so well. I mean, so well. Like, you know how you get jealous when you read someone's work and you're like, wow, she can do this so well. I wish I could do that. And it's it's really inspiring. So I'm gonna I'm gonna tell everyone if if you want to learn how to write magical realism, buy this book. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. I have a, it's a lot of fun writing it. It's right up there with like Water for Chuck, all the books that I love that build that into the story. I'm going to read some comments really quick just because we have some uh, friends of ours here. Oh. Liz Gonzalez said, oh. love this novel. Maya, the protagonist, was a great companion as I was dealing with some major challenges. Very, yeah, totally. Um, and then Stephanie says, Stephanie Barbie Hammer says, such a treasure trove of impressions and discoveries and she goes on to say the use of visuals and other senses provide such a great getaway into the magical and stephanie herself is a, is a craft master of magical realism so that's high praise yes i i, I like to learn from the masters and she loves them. she's one of them. <laughs> and, and liz too yeah, and what I noticed and what I found so interesting is at the end of the book when i was reading the acknowledgments they were part of your writing circle stephanie and liz is that right that's right. That's right. I mean, that's magic there that we all came together. Um, I hadn't thought about that until right now, but it's been really a blessing to oh. work with this 
to these group of ladies. Yeah. And then in the process, I get to meet you through them. So I, I really do think it is magical because it's a circle and then you're extending the circle and then you're adding more circles, more people to the community. And uh, it, it does. It's it's beautiful. It's a blessing. Um, or as my mom used to say, that's my grandma, water seeks its own level. Mm. Very true. I mean, that's so true. Oh, and Cindy's here. Um, Cindy Nessinger, who wrote a book about uh, the mouse at the Mission Inn, a beautiful novel. Hi, Ruthie. <laughs> Hi, Cindy. Okay. Well, let's talk about an aspect that I'm particularly drawn to because I'm a lawyer. Maya is a lawyer. I've been a stressed out lawyer, both in corporate and as a public defender. She's clearly not happy and work and other stress has made her very sick. Um, how, and you talked about it briefly, but you say um, how important self-care is. And even on page 196, for example, and there's all kinds of references. If, if I would love to do a, a close read of this with people. Um, he, someone tells her, you've got to, to start believing that you are good and smart and beautiful, he said. And that's Gabriel, I believe. Love yourself. Love yourself. Take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's literally dying as a result of her job. Right, right. And and that is just so important. If you can figure out a way to love yourself. Um, I know for me and and for Maya, um, you can look at how you, you got to look at how you love other people, like how mm. much she loves Lily, how much she, that's, she's her life. So love yourself as much as you love as much as you love others, you know, treat, treat yourself the way you would, again, cliche, how you want to be treated, but um, how you would treat your loved ones. And so, um, you know, she's sick. Um, and, and if you get sick, how can you help anybody else? How can you help your loved ones if you're sick? So you need to be number one and take care of yourself. Um, yeah. And there's somewhat of a happy ending in some ways of this story. And that's what I love, too. I love me a happy ending in a romance. Um, but let's go to something political that I think is very beautiful. You do it beautifully and you weave it in without making it overtly political. I saw a strong legal theme of migration and showing that we, the Mexicanos, may have been here, are, were here first. Was that another goal for you to show how um, otherizing discourses about the Latino populations are harmful and how do how do we combat that? What is illegal? What is legal? Why does it matter? We're all one. We were here first. You know, let's stand up for ourselves. Was that part of it too? Because it's throughout the book. Yeah, and um, others have have written more eloquently about this, the, the legal stuff and the political stuff. I mean, I, I'm just, I don't want to say I'm a simple person, but I've observed what I've observed. I've seen it within the family and within people that I, I know. Um, and I, I, I want to go back and just show some of the, I wanted to show some of the hypocrisy. And I think I'll be doing that in my next book as well. Um, I want to go all the way back to before Columbus, uh, pre-colonial times. I mean, we were all on some big iceberg at one point. It just all split up and, you know, we all got, we drifted other places, but we are all the same blood. We are all the same blood. And um, I just, it kills me. It kills me. That's not the right word, but it just irks me um, yeah. to when somebody speaks 
you know, with superior, superiority over somebody else. And I just saw it again the other day. And I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, the gardeners. Not my gardeners. Neighbors gardeners. They got a new truck. And somebody said that they, they used, you know, the, the surplus, you know, to go and buy a new truck. They were supposed to use it for equipment. I'm like, well, that is equipment. I mean, yeah. I just, I, who do you think you are? Anyways, I get really angry and. Um, well, thank you, because I think it is important that the way you do it, this is not pedagogy. This is, you do it in dialogue. You say in the scene where Ophelia says, there are those who make it through a window and then want to shut the door on the others, even if it is family, Ophelia said. And then Lily added and put up a wall. You do it in a very, um, you know, very non-overt, non-political way. But what you're showing us through the dialogue of Mexicanos who have come back and forth, that how they feel about this. This You're giving them a voice. And I think it's so important. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And then we also have Cindy Messenger saying a beautiful novel. Hi, Ruthie. I think All I already right. said that. Thanks, Cindy. So. What is, so the whole book centers around, as you said before, the agave plant and the tequila, the piña, and what, so, and it's also agave is blue, right? Right. But agave, the blue has a lot of different symbolism throughout the novel. I love novels that do this, like Wizard of Oz with green, this book with blue, some novels with red, the red curtain and other books that I love. What is blue? Is blue depression? Is blue anxiety? Is blue tequila? Is blue healing? Like, it seems like almost contradictory that has all these different meanings, but I love that about it. So what is blue? Blue is all those things that you just mentioned. Some that I didn't even think of. Uh, healing. It is healing. Um, like a blue flame almost, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And heat. Mm -hmm. And water. All that stuff. Um, which leads me to maybe another uh, thing that you and I had discussed. Um, the bad rap that tequila gets, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's not just, it's not, it's without sign, sounding, it's like guns don't kill, people kill. Tequila doesn't kill. It's, it's, it's you know, somebody who's overdoing it or it's the underlying it's the underlying issues that tequila is um, that people are hiding behind, um, the, and and it and it does have its medicinal uses, and it has historically they used tequila for different or agave the the plant agave for different things. So it's not just something that you know drunks imbibe. Uh, you know, yeah, there's that um, passage where Don Pio is saying, I've witnessed the ugly side. It gives tequila a bad name, but right. the heart of the agave is pure. Right. Right. And there's those other scenes where Maya's eating the, what's it called? Like the candy of the agave? Moche. No, I don't think that's what it is. I've forgotten already. Um, but you, you said it was like sugar cane, right? It's so but, sweet. But, yeah, it's like uh, chewing on sugar cane. It's just very sweet. Um, and and yeah, it's it's um, it's uh, it's what you do to the tequila. Yeah, it's it's what you add to it, and uh, when you don't know when to stop. Yeah, and there's that other um, scene where you're talking about what tequila is. It's the taste of home and memory. 
But then the narrator is clearly ashamed of her father who was always drunk. So I guess my question, and and then it also heals Maya, Maya in many ways, the agave, or at least there's the implication it does. It could also be different drugs, or it could have been a miracle. But, <laughs> but magic. It, it's magic. In the end, the book is all about her father, right? And about an excavation into her father's history and forgiving her father and even forgiving herself. Talk about the idea of forgiveness. How does that work? In here, in this book, uh, I think when you, when when she got to the heart of the matter, when she she's always she went into law. She wanted to help people, right? Mm-hmm. There's this characteristic of that goes hand in hand with that type of type of person. You would know, empathetic, sympathetic, rooting for the underdog. So I think she was on a quest to learn more about her father so that she could empathize, so she could mm. sympathize with him. And, and you know, people who have these illnesses, they don't ask to have those illnesses. They're struggling. And so she sees that, but she also has to, you know, everybody has just struggles and, and she's dealing with a lot. So one by one, she's, she's um, trying to understand this illness and what her daughter's going through, what her ex is going through. Mm-hmm. What, no, what's going through, what everybody else is going through, but herself. So in discovering things about others, she's discovering things about herself. And she's able to then forgive them. And she might even forgive herself. You have to read the yeah. book. Yeah, you have to read the book. And what's really interesting, I had so many intersections and connections with it, especially this idea of this lawyer who takes care of everyone but herself, who lets her body slide and, you know, is being eaten away by ulcers and other things. And, you know, that idea of if you can go home and heal yourself, like spiritually, maybe the physical can follow, you know, I love that idea that it can give us some hope, even in the depths of the most desperate illnesses. Um, I just really, I mean, maybe it's because I've dealt with my own health issues, with my mom's health issues, with my dad, you know, dying from cancer that I just, I just, I think it's a very hopeful book. And that's why I love that there's this romance and this happy side to it. Antonio is not the nicest guy in many ways. So she has her um, fiance or boyfriend, Zane, who's like this pathetic druggy. Um, actor dude who's like using and stuff and then she goes back to Mexico and she meets Antonio who she knew as a little girl he's not that nice to her what is it is it kind of like that sense and sensibility thing where he's kind of tugging on her pigtails to show he likes her or is it that he likes her and he doesn't want to show it like I couldn't read Antonio for me and and I like that about it because men to me can be very um, opaque at times I cannot Mm -hmm read them very well and so what is it about Antonio that draws her in and what is it for him that draws him to her she's always had probably a little secret crush um okay but he's her cousin so she can't have a crush so she knows to stay away and um removed cousins not too they're not like first cousins right they're a little bit more removed than that I think they're kind kind of foggy (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, and I didn't mind it. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, oh man, if you knew the real stories of that, 
anyway. I'm a Game of Thrones fan. There's incest all over the place with cousins and sisters and brothers. So. Well, it's a small village. How do you think it gets bigger? <laughs> so, and then he, the way he looks at her, he just doesn't really have time for her. So she's kind of an afterthought. And the more she's annoying, like she used to be as a kid with his brother, um, you know, she she wears on wears on him. She grows on him. Yeah. And um, and he's got his issues too, of course. I mean, isn't that what these types of characters, they always go for those moody, those moody, dark, handsome <laughs> uh, types? And yeah. So and uh, Stephanie says, I love these questions about Antonio. He is kind of a Mr. Darcy type. He is. And for me, who grew, I grew up reading Harlequin romance novels. There is this, um, there was this very um, common type of male character that was brooding, not too nice. I remember my favorite Harlequin was this girl who he was her, she was his ward and he was really mean to her, but it, not abusive, but just like kind of cold. And then they end up falling in love at, at the end. And I'm like, finally. So I love books that do that, that yeah, Rhett Butler kind of type too, in some ways, in the sense that these are flawed men but that they're also super sexy. <laughs> Antonio's sexy. Like when they, you know, finally get together a little bit, I was like, yeah, I knew that was going to be hot. Girl, you should write more books with love scenes because you're really good at that too. I was like, that was hot. I had to write it for, for uh, knowing that I have children. <laughs> now they're grown. I can make it hotter. <laughs> I love books that do that. I mean, because I I read everything from, romance to erotica like the low end erotica because I just love that idea that female sexuality is romantic right it's not gonna be hardcore porn it's like no we want to be swept off our feet we want to swoon in their arms I know it's cliche and all that but I love that and uh, Renya Grande who wrote a uh, ballad of love and glory did it very well too and yeah. I love books that bring in romance because it's it's an underappreciated art it's it's human nature. I mean, I I struggled with making or writing a romance because we want to teach our girls that yeah you don't need a man to make you happy. Much like what Maya's mother was telling her over and over. You don't need a man. Go and make your own living. And you know that's kind of what we want to teach our children. And plus, there are no princes and in those fairy tales no cinderella you know, the, the the white knight on a horse coming by to rescue you mm -hmm. so i kind of struggled with giving her a love interest but i mean who doesn't love love makes the world go around and not only that i think maya's mom says at one point you don't need no man to like keep your feet warm like buy some socks kind of thing <laughs> i love that idea because it's it's good right everyone needs love just because we're independent feminists that can be good business people and lawyers and take over the family business doesn't mean we don't need love, right? Maybe we don't need paternalistic um, controlling right. love or abusive love, but we need love, man. Everyone does. Yeah. So I wanted to make him have some redeemable qualities, but uh, without giving too much away, we'll see if that happens or not. Right. You did a great job at it. No, I love I love the character of Antonio just because he is so mysterious. And like, it's not always, you don't want to, I mean, to me, this is the thing about romance. Let me imagine a little bit. 
I don't need to know everything about the love interest. I want to imagine almost what Maya was thinking and what he's thinking about her. And I can fill in the blanks myself. So who would you cast? Because I know you're a screenwriter. Who would you cast Maya as? And who would you cast Antonio as? I mean, we could go easy and go Antonio Banderas. But someone, so, so I, so who? That would have been it because I wrote this, I wrote this so long ago. And, and he was, he was the one. And then it would have been, of course, uh, Selma Hayek. But, That's uh, what I was thinking. Yes, exactly. But I mean, that was so many years ago. I have got, to, oh, there's some really hot. You could do Selma and Benicio. Aren't they married in real life? There's some really hot ones out there right now, you know. And, and I like the guy from Amoros Peros with the silver eyes. Oh, silver eyes. Yeah, he has silver eyes. He was in Station at Nine, oh, and he was in Amoros Peros. You know, when I, I was when I was writing this, when I wrote, he was this. in the Motorcycle Diaries. Um, oh, oh, you know who I mean? Diego Luna or um, no, that the other one. His friend. Yeah. Yeah, he would probably be good. Um, He's a little short, but I, I pictured Antonio is very tall. Maya, Maya is tall. Maya is tall. She comes mm -hmm. from the region of Los Altos, which everybody's giant. So oh, they are. Um, but, you know, in when it's a movie, they can put them out of a soapbox or something. Liz. Liz just said that we should cast, that she should cast Antonio oh! as... <laughs> That's the one. He's the one. I think I mentioned that before. I He's love him. I love Lincoln Lawyer for sure. Yeah. And then Stephanie said Diego Luna. I would say the other friend in the he was the one he was Hola Prima, <laughs> all the way from Memphis. Claudia Oh, hi Claudia. Hi, Thanks Claudia. for watching. We're having a good discussion here. Um I see I used to cast everyone. She knows the rest. She knows who I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So people put more comments. Oh, the actor's name, according to Liz, is Manuel Garcia Rufo. Um, Manuel. Um, and I I would tell everyone the two shows I loved this season is Lincoln Lawyer on Netflix, which has a Latino lawyer at the, at the center of it, and then Reservation Dogs. Uh, which is my favorite show of this season. And that one actually cast an all native cast, all native directors, all native uh, writers, and then brought the kids on the show into the writer's room. So if that's not about inclusive, I mean, we got to do this for ourselves. All we got to do is someone has to write a screenplay and then we can all bring each other into the writer's room. I love that. Let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah, and we'll, we'll do the, uh, the casting. <laughs> that would be fun I always thought that being a casting director would be the funnest job ever um, so let's talk about this since we're moving away from the romance what advice there's a lot of people watching who are themselves writers both burgeoning writers very experienced writers what advice do you have for people that are trying to write their first or first book like how do you start how long did this book take you just give people a little idea of, of how long you're, and then you also have this book, Curse of the Ninth, and you have more books. You know, talk a little bit about your writing journey and how you inspire yourself to get up every morning and write. Um, well, I, I, I was doing a, I listened in today, Writers Wednesday. Oh my gosh, Writers Wednesday, Wednesday writing with Janet Fitch. Oh, uh huh. Name dropping there, but talking about. I love her. Yes. Um, talking about 
writing every day and I, I, I wrote in the chat how, I, you know, the, the holidays took me away and I, and I find, I found myself getting into a little bit of a funk. Mm-hmm. And then this morning, as I'm getting ready for this, and I got back to the sequel that I'm working on, my mood is 100% better. So for me, that is my tequila. That is my therapy. Um, art in, in all kinds of different forms. I like to say that we are creatures. We have been created. We are creatures. We And what do creatures do? They must create. Mm. So whether you're whether you're a painter, um, a writer, a musician, whatever it is, you you must create. And of course, Maya hasn't done any of the stuff that she loved for so many years, and she's rediscovering her paintings. She's recreating. She's creating again, and that too is a healing element. Is to mm. to get back to your. It's your meditation. So um, I would say, if anybody out there wants to write. Just sit down like she did, get the easel out, get your, your pens out, and just, you might just write one or two words, but listen and wait for the inspiration, wait for the, wait for the magic to happen. And the magic is creating words that mean something, mm. putting those words together. Yeah, you know, there's a recent craft book called Writing is Magic. I really believe that, you know, Stephen King calls it channeling. I at times do channel when I write memoir, especially because it's, you know, probably the ancestors uh, channeling in our ear or talking to us in our ear, my grandpa, my father. And um, I think there's something really special about creating it as a practice, you know, that this is this it can be a, it doesn't have to be um, a job, but it can be a practice almost like yoga where every morning, you know, I haven't been writing recently either. I've been marketing. And I've been working on uh, projects about the podcast and trying to get my platform higher and doing stuff like that. And taking care of certain people. And taking care of my mom and other people. Mm -hmm. And I have too noticed that my mood has gone down as my writing practice has gone down. And if I write every morning, at least, even if it's on my blog, even if it's a, a poem that I put in my phone, if I write every morning as a practice for an hour, I have a much better mood as well. It's, it's, it's funny, but it's true. It's, it's true. It's, yeah. It makes, like makes me look a little psycho because, uh, you know, I'll come out and my husband and I'm smiling. And it's like, what? <laughs> you went into the room all depressed and you come out. <laughs> but he's listening right now. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, you know, that other idea of like that the secret that no one, we don't really spread around because we don't know if we want everyone to know how cool writing communities are, right? Like the fact that I get to interview you and talk to you and talk to people like Stephanie and Liz and um, other people that, Cindy, that I've grown to know and love their work. And it's to me, that is the biggest gift of all of this is that we all get to come together. Yeah. I just read something by, oh gosh, I'm bad at names. She has... The wild braids. Oh, uh, Annie Lamott. I did you see what I posted? No. The thing about writing, it's not. It's almost like it's not the. It's not the destination. It's the journey. That's, she didn't say it. She said it more eloquently. But 
It goes to what I was listening to today about writing. And if you're going to be writing for money or for um, success or whatever, that you, you might not achieve that. But what you're going to achieve is that, like you say, those friendships along the way, the enlightening conversations you have along the way. And, and that that really, to me, is is the, the magic. That really, to me, is the, the gift of writing. I mean, if the screenplay play gets made into a movie that's also wonderful <laughs> a girl can dream but it's just this journey along the way and if we can't it, we we better i better appreciate it because not not to say that this might be all there is but this might be the the, the gift or this is the yeah gift. I truly believe that, that you have, it's almost like with my weight, I have to appreciate where I am and not always be wanting something different to really feel beautiful about myself. And it's the same thing with my writing. I have to be present in the here and now and appreciate how far I've come with my two books. And 10 years, you know, 10 years ago, I was like, this is never going to happen. You know, I'm never going to be able to do this. And then Look at all your books you've written in this. I mean, that is the accomplishment right there. These books live forever. When did I do all that? that that's the thing. I used to mm-hmm. tell my kids um, a little at a time, or like if you save a penny every day, mm-hmm. it's going to add up. And when I set out to write long, long time ago, I never, I never knew that I'd write this much. And still, I don't think it's enough. <laughs> well, you are so prolific. I know you also do screenplays. This started out as a screenplay. If there's any people watching, this would make a great novella or TV show or movie, limited series or film even. Um, and so check out Ruthie's work. Tell us about what's next on your horizon and what where people can find your work. Then um, I would like you to read again really briefly if you'd like, and then we can do a shot of tequila. All right. Uh, what am I working on? I'm working on the sequel to Curse of the Ninth. Um, Get that book, everyone. Curse of the Ninth. I'm reading, reading it right now. It's amazing. I was reading it again today, and I unfortunately it came out uh, during the onset of COVID, and so it didn't really get too much attention. And I didn't know how to to give it any attention. I didn't know how to market it during, you know. So so yeah. I we set out to work on the sequel, hoping that I can. If somebody likes a sequel, they'll go back and want to know where these characters came from or what their genesis was. So I'm having a lot of fun working on and still her voice. Um, I love sequels. When uh, when I was little, I wanted to write the sequel to Gone with the Wind. I love sequels. And sometimes I'll read the sequel first and then go back to the original. Wow. I've done that where I buy the second book by accident and I just read it. And then I'll read the first one and the second one again. Yeah, a lot of times they, they're standalone, so you can read one mm-hmm. without reading the other, like those dragon tattoo girl ones. Um, and then how do people find you and your work? I have a website, ruthiemarlinay.com, and that's where you'll find my readings, my writings, um, and some of the other links to some of the other things that have been published, those short stories and poetry. Uh, I've got to get back to my website and kind of polish that up, too. It's, a, it's another part of writing. So you've got to do this, have the housekeeping. 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah and you know, you mentioned the marketing and I'm going to do a podcast on that soon. It's going to be a special edition podcast. Marketing is if marketing can eat up all your time, but it, I think it's so important to put the time and energy into getting your book out there. And that's why I'm so glad I could help you promote this beautiful Thank you so book. Much. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's really important. I'm not able to let my books go because I don't think they've had enough readership yet. And I know that your work, that if people start reading it, they're just going to fall because you already have a lot of books and people can just fall into them, you know, and lose themselves. It'll be a year next in a couple of months and people are still reading it. People are still putting up reviews um, and it's still resonating with them. So books will be around, you know, for a long time. And I mean, if this is not in the zeitgeist, what is? We have these mandates about better representation, right? And this is pure representation. This is no American dirt. This is the real deal here. This is written by a Latina about Latinos in Mexico and California and from a person who lives here, right? <laughs> who lives here. I, You know, this idea that um, you can write about other cultures, fine, you can. But who do I want to read? I want to read people that are writing what they know personally. That's me. Maybe it's because I'm a memoirist, maybe because I'm a purist. I don't mind people writing in other um, ethnicities and, and genders and stuff like that. I don't mind that. But what I love the most are books that resonate with me because they're based on someone's truth. Right. And um, sometimes I want to not beat myself up, but it's like, can't you think of anything else besides your own truth? And um, uh, it's what I've got. You know, it's what I've got. Even Curse of the Knife, it's, it's my truth. It's the truth of my family. Um, yeah. With some twists, some twists. So. Yeah, Stephanie and I were just talking about that issue of writing what you know. And that it's 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 really hard when you're starting out because you want to, I always wanted to write like Sandra or Juno or James Joyce. But in the end, I just have to write myself. Yeah. That, you Whoever know, that is. That's your gift. That's the creator gave you, you. Yeah. To share. Well, cool. Let's do a shot of tequila and then you're going to read. Or do you want to read first, then do tequila? Uh, I don't know. Let's see. Okay. I kind of want to have you do a shot, then read a little passage again. Because why not? You want to see if I'm going to slur or not? (laughs) You won't slur after one. We've had tequila before. (laughs) Okay. Cheers, everyone. Cheers. This is to Ruthie's book. Please go out and buy it. Um, And also... I'm going to do a little giveaway. I'm going to send someone a copy of her book, um, Agave Blues, or if you want Curse of the Ninth, I'll send out that one. If someone could put in the comments, um, I'm thinking of a trivia question. Who, who, and don't cheat, (laughs) who wrote the song Tequila? Tequila! Okay. First person to get it. Mine is good. Mine is good. Ooh, I've never, this is literally, someone gave it to us as a gift. It's been sitting in my living room for about two years, but I don't think tequila ever goes bad, but it was delicious. Yeah. yeah. And I'm so bad that we had no lime and I had um, a taco earlier for lunch and I had a little lime in my car. So I went to my car to get my lime. You don't need a lime. If it's good. Really? No, no salt, no, no lime. You just drink it. Sure. I am learning something today, but man, my stomach's burning. It's probably from the lime and salt. Okay. Probably because it's not my tequila. I know. Okay, so I'll read about um, Los Olvidados. She finally gets to the 
she finally gets to the um, field and um, gets out of the car, standing at the border, breathing in the field. I suddenly missed this place like I missed a favorite cousin. And then when a small dove landed on the tip of an agave plant, I stepped a little closer, but the bird took off deeper into the field. Dwarfed by agave on either side, I chased the dove, remembering how I would run through here as a child with my cousin Gabrielle. When I came to a slight peak in the meadow, I stopped. Hands on my knees, I lifted my head, gulping in more air. The sounds of children squealing pierced the wind, but when I looked all around, I was alone. As I took in the view across to the north, like a valley of death, I felt my eyes go wide, goosebumps erupting on my arms. What used to be rows of thriving agave were now just shriveled plants in dirt choked by weeds. Beyond the edge of the field, scrubby mesquites and ancient oak trees dotted the landscape. Further out, I could see a dried up riverbed where a couple of emaciated looking cows grazed. I rubbed my arms and then reached into my pocket to pull out the picture from Papa's wallet. I held it out in front of me. The river used to be full. I felt a twinge in my stomach, stealing myself for the pain to follow, but incredibly, nothing ached. Stretched before me was the exact panoramic view where my father had taken me, had taken my picture as a girl. I could almost see myself running through toward the camera, legs thin as churros, caked in red cinnamon powder, twin braids flying in the wind. Papa, I whispered now, and then cleared my throat as I continued to wander back through the rows of agave. The ancient sky above this part of the field seemed to sparkle with more sapphire and certainly bluer than any sky I'd ever seen in Los Angeles. The dew on the tips of agave glistened like liquid sugar drops. The heart of the field pulsed with life. Insects appeared larger, butterflies more vibrant, bees buzzed boisterously. The belly of the field was sweet and incandescent, like a child's birthday cake topped with a generous arrangement of candles. An orchestra of sound vibrated through me, infusing me with a warmth penetrating my being, dulling my pain like a good tequila. I, I, twirled I twirled slowly, so enthralled by my surroundings. Another dove joined the first one, and I followed them both deeper into the field until out of nowhere, I came up behind a man seated in front of a short easel and a canvas. I stopped in my tracks, taking a moment to watch him paint. With his back to me, I strained to peek over his shoulder. He sat barefoot and cross-legged, and I could see that he had a reedy frame draped with a loose, gauzy, linen-colored tunic and drawstring pants. Um, I, think, I feel like I've read too much here, but um, she discovers her cousin, her long-lost cousin, in the field uh, painting. So Beautiful. She'll learn, she'll learn some lessons from Gabrielle. <laughs> I love it. I love it when you read your work. It's so beautiful, so lyrical. You know, <clears throat> dialogue is something that I really look for in a book and your dialogue is so strong, but your exposition is also very strong. And the thing I had to just show you really quick is I just noticed on this bottle, it's 100% agave. Uh -huh. And this was in my house. So this was meant to be. 
magic. <laughs> it is mad. I didn't even know that was pure agave. I had no idea, but it's all we had. Other than I know you looked down on Cuervo. I had a bunch of Cuervo and Cuervo margarita stuff, and you're like, oh, Cuervo. And in the book, let's talk about that really quick. Um, there's that idea about purity, right? And about uh, commercialism and that Cuervo is this like watered down view of tequila and this like almost nasty view of tequila where it's like painful to drink. What, what for you, how did you know that? Did you already know about different tequilas? Cause I don't, I don't know nothing about tequila. No, I did. I did not. And not to bad mouth tequila um, Cuervo too much. Cause there might be, there's probably some hundred percent pure agave. Somebody will get, get to me and, and tell me I'm wrong, but there are mixtos. So where they add, they add things to the tequila. And if you add something, you cannot call it, you cannot call, well, you can't call it tequila, tequila, unless it's from the region. Okay. Um, kind of like champagne. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if it's mixed, you can't, it can't be a hundred percent agave, something like that. I've had too much tequila now. I can't really explain <laughs> uh, But and I have a funny story about why I don't drink on air. Me and Linda Hogan, who this leads into, uh, she's Linda Hogan, who wrote this beautiful book called Our Song that just came out, A Memoir of Love and Race. Um, Linda Hogan and I were in a writing group together with Francis Borella for years. And uh, Linda and I decided to do a podcast where we drink vodka during it. And I don't drink vodka. I drink beer. And uh, it was not a good scene. I don't. <laughs> it started at the beginning. Towards the end, you see me just going, Ooh, boop. Yeah. So. There's, a, there's a TV show or a series. Was it called Drunk Diaries or something? <laughs> so, yes. yeah. So, I have a couple sections to read. Liz Gonzalez loved your reading. Such a beautiful section, she says. We are transported there and the narrator and story are developed. We also have Frances Vasquez. Um, yes. She says a good tequila is like cognac, sip it. Right. With a drunk cigar. History. A drunk history, that's it. Yeah, with, sip it with a cigar. <laughs> oh, no. You know I want a cigarette right now and I quit. So it's really the, the, the thing about alcohol is that it goes hand in hand with smoking. So for me, alcohol is always hard right now when I'm trying to quit smoking. But I just want to say this. You are such a beautiful person. Hopefully we'll get to read together again soon. We did that reading at Book Jewel, which I really loved. And I just want to urge everyone to go to your website, ruthiemarlinade.com. The link is in the comments. I'll put it on my Life of Gem Facebook page. Literally buy all her books. Like go right now to Amazon or to her website and buy all her books. Okay. Okay. So I also want to talk about upcoming podcasts next week. I have Tim Kirk on. He is a writer, a filmmaker. He'll be here on 12-7. All his books, a few of them are available on Pelicanesis. The book just came out called Christ Never Showed Up, The Disappointing Near Death of Joe McPuppet and His Curious Life Afterward. That's not a great title. I don't know what is. <laughs> and another great titled book, The Feral Boy Who Lives in Griffith Park. And I actually think oh. Tim Kirk is watching. So, Tim, I'll see you next week. And I'm reading I'm reading your books right now. Linda Hogan will be on 1214 on a Wednesday. Always her book, Our Song, is epic. I uh, was in a writing group with her for years. I'm so excited about her book, which just came out with She Writes Press. And uh, 
So tune in. I'm going to be here the next two weeks. We're going to end season two on a high note. We're going to start season three in January again. I'm going to go every other week for a while to try to get as many people in as I can. I just want to thank you, Ruthie, for coming on, for being such an amazing guest. And I would love to have you on again. Juanita, I can't thank you enough. I mean, you are, I, I was, like I said, so looking forward to this. And this will be the treat of the my holiday season, just being able to do this with you. Aww. And after then, the desert, we'll go have a margarita. Cheers, everyone. Okay. Bye. Thank you so much. Bye.